Imagine That Studios and Karu Studios in association with Harper Voyager Books presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 1 The Official Anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences This one is a bit dusty. Have a care, Miss Braun. Sometimes what you may think is dust is actually a calling card from where the case originated. Coming in? Many of the cases here in the archives are key clues, acquired relics, and on many instances, personal journals. So while these lost stories may be dusty, they may also have... Dirt from the African wilderness? A good example. No, I can tell by the colour of the dirt ingrained here on the journal's cover and in the spine. The texture is also characteristic of soil from the Dark Continent. Uh, yes, of course. Let's have a look at the date. Ooh, 1878. Long before your time or mine. Some sort of amulet. Ah, yes, the Amulet of Aminatus. I remember an agent cross-referencing that in a case from 1880. Agent Heathcliff Durham, I believe. Could never find the original case. Looks like we have one more item to add to our agenda today. Welly, where is the amulet? There's nothing else in this case file except for his notes. No amulet? No amulet. Right then. Make that two items to add to our agenda today. The Astonishing Amulet of Amenartus by Nathan Lowell An excerpt from the Field Journal of Agent Heathcliff Durham, Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, May 23rd through August 12th, 1878. On the afternoon of May the 23rd, 1878, I found myself standing in the muggy shadow of the airship Piet Retief in the airfield at Durban, Natal Province. The fortnight's journey from London to Durban by way of Cape Town had addled my mind and left my eyes feeling as if the sands of the Kalahari herself had traversed the width of the dark continent to take refuge in my ocular orbits. Normally, I enjoy the leisurely perambulations of airship travel, but the urgency of my mission had me straining at the traces and wishing for the gate keys I had turned over to the Ministry's archives back in 72. Ethergate travel would have carved weeks off my journey, to say nothing of being much less taxing on my backside. While I waited for the porters to offload my steamer trunk and gun case from the airship's hold, I surveyed the city such as it was. The moist haze of subtropical afternoon pressed its heavy hand on the landscape, and even the shrill screech of a steam whistle somewhere down on the point seemed muffled. Adjusting the magnification on my telemonocle, I brought the distant harbour into clear view and watched as an ancient side-wheeler laboured to clear the harbour, a dark plume from her funnels drifting languidly up and across the bay. 
The sudden occlusion of my view by a dark forest made me release the monocle in reflex, and I stared into the yellowed eyes of the chief porter. Jumbo Bona, he said. You need car to get to town, yeah? Behind him, a skinny boy regarded me with a gleam of hope in his eyes. My nephew has caught. Make you good deal, Bona. I say, that won't be necessary, I told him. But if someone could show me the way to the royal, I'd be quite grateful. While the skinny boy looked disappointed, the porter himself beamed. At once, Mbona. My second wife's nephew's brother knows the way, you bet. He waved one brawny arm above his head and shouted something at a group of native lads crouched in the shade of a luggage shed. While the erstwhile cartman shuffled away, a spry lad, wearing little more than a breechcloth, bounded across the dusty field. He skidded to a halt beside the larger man, and they gabbled in one of the native dialects for a moment. The boy eyed my steamer trunk with a certain amount of dubiousness, all the while casting surreptitious glances in my direction. While they negotiated, I addressed the steamer trunk in question. The boiler had been cold for several days while in transit from the Ministry's offices in London. I stoked the compact furnace with a few scoops of coal pellets from the trunk storage compartment and set the clockwork ignition to start the fire. Standing from my labors, I found the natives had completed their business. The boy crouched in the shade of the airship waiting for me while the muscular porter shambled toward a sturdy-looking wooden building with the White Star logo above the door. You, lad, speak English, do you? Oh, yes, sir, Moana. Speak it good. You know it. He eyed the trunk while I tried to gauge his stock. Good lad. You know the way to the Royal, the Royal Hotel? Oh, yes, sir. Smith Street. His voice piped clearly above the subdued murmur of the town. The trunk began to hiss softly as the boiler gained pressure. Good. I'll give you a copper to lead me there. A copper, Moana? What do you get me for a quarter, huh? He scowled at the gun case and trunk waiting on the ground. Who dat gonna have that, hey, Buona? My brain had to work a bit to unscramble his sentences, but I just shook my head. No, no, just walk. I'll deal with this. There's a good lad. I held out my hand with a copper in it. When he reached for it, I closed my fingers around it. When we get there, lad... He shrugged and tried to look uninterested, but the steamer had come up to pressure. I swung the gun case up from the ground and laid it across the top of the trunk, then freed the guide tether from its clip in the front. Let's go, lad, shall we? But that trunk won't... His voice cut off as I tugged the guide sharply. With a hiss of steam and a groan of gears, the articulated legs unfolded smoothly from the bottom of the trunk. The boy jumped up and started to run, but stopped after only a few steps, his eyes darting back and forth between me and the steamer. He leaned over and tried to look up under the base, but there was nothing really to see, and in a few moments his face broke into a broad smile. I waved my hand for him to go on, and we set off across the hard pan, him in the lead, me next in line, and my steamer on its guide lead, stepping along smartly behind with a rhythmic hiss-click-stamp. 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 In a few minutes, our strange parade marched along the side of Broad Smith Street in Durban proper and up to the front of the Royal Hotel. I flipped the copper to the boy as we stopped in front of the hotel. He raced off back toward the airship landing field, and I went in search of my room and my local contact, Agent Randall Morrison. I found Morrison in the bar at the Royal, dressed shamefully for a royal subject in a sweat-stained bush shirt and short baggy trousers. When I entered the bar, he looked up from his drink and staggered over to greet me, pumping my hand effusively. Dorum, old man, I didn't expect you until the 23rd. It is the 23rd, Morrison, 
I eyed his dishabille. Morrison drew himself up to his full height. Dash it all, you say it can't be. Why, just yesterday. He paused, a frown creasing his brow, and he brought up one rough paw, figuring something on his fingers. He blinked several times and repeated the movements before looking back at me. By God, so it is. His expression brightened. And here you are. I sighed. Indeed. Oh, come along, come along, he said, and drew me to the bar. The dark-skinned barman offered a welcoming smile and asked, What can I get for you, sir? Would it be possible to get a cup of tea? Of course, sir. This is the royal. Do you have a preference? A spot of assam, if you have it. Of course, sir. Morrison returned to his stool and took a long pull from the glass awaiting him. He winked over the rim. Gin, he said when he finally surfaced. Mix it with the quinine and it rather cuts the taste. Quite useful in the fly, don't you know? The fly? Oh, yes, yes, tetsy fly country, dreadful little blighters. Trust me, Durham, malaria is nothing to fool about with. Gin is your friend. The barman returned with my tea in a proper china pot and delicate cup and saucer. Milk or sugar, sir? Uh, None, thanks. He smiled and left the pot, moving down the bar. I took a seat and poured a cup. Just the aroma calmed my nerves, and the sip went a long way toward restoring my equilibrium. Morrison, I need to get into the bush as soon as possible. Tomorrow morning, if possible. Not done, old man. Simply not. He shook his head, even as he dipped into his gin again. Why not? Logistics, man, logistics. We'll need porters, supplies, ammunition, at the very least. He turned bleary eyes in my direction. Where are we heading? We? I asked, somewhat taken aback by the notion that I'd be saddled with this unfortunate before me. He snorted a short laugh. Unless you've taken up Swahili since I saw you last, old man, you're going to need me to deal with the locals. I looked over to where the barman stacked glasses in the back bar. Morrison saw me and gave a high-pitched titter. Hardly the locals you'll be dealing with. He took another pull from his glass and looked a trifle less inebriated than he had moments before. You still haven't answered. Where are we headed? A rock's drift, first. After that, it depends on where the trail leads. Zooland, then, eh? He drained his glass and snapped it back onto the bar. Not a good place to be these days, is it? I sipped my tea and thought about how much I could tell him. My brief mentioned some difficulties, but we shouldn't be too close to those. If you're going across the buffalo, you're going too close, old man. He turned his head and looked out of the tall windows into Smith Street. Too close by half, I say, he said without looking back at me. Two days. Day after tomorrow. Dawn. I'll be ready. I finished the tea and placed the cup back onto the saucer. He sighed and turned to face me once more. What are we looking for? Animal, vegetable, mineral? He regarded me from under his eyebrows. Animal, I said. A man, actually. And you think this fellow is lurking about Rourke's drift? He sat up. No, but he was last seen near there. We need to find him. The director is concerned that he may be here to cause trouble with the natives. Morrison snorted. I think that trouble with the natives, as you so blithely call it, is inevitable. Be that as it may, Morrison, I need to get out there and find him. Who is this fellow? Some rogue-gone native from Garrison? What can possibly entertain the uh, director's attention, eh? A native. Someone named Induna Lumbui. A crash in the back of the bar startled me. When I jerked to look, the bartender stooped down and started sweeping the loose shards of glass onto a pile. Sorry to disturb you, sir. It slipped. 
I turned back to Morrison, and he no longer appeared inebriated at all. His look had turned dark and his brow furrowed. His eyes darted to the barman and back in small, furtive blinks. When he spoke, his voice was barely louder than a whisper. Induna is a title, not a name. And if I were you, I'd not mention the other until we're well out into the bush. What the devil? I started. He shot me a look that quelled my voice, if not my curiosity. Day after tomorrow, dawn. You've got money for bearers? I nodded once. Good. I'll find us the bearers and a guide or two. He shot me another dark look. Get some sleep. You're going to need it. Three days out of Durban found us deep in the bush on the trail to Rourke's Drift, a ford on the Buffalo River in northeastern Natal province. I say, Durham, Morrison said as we settled to camp for the night, what's so important about this blasted amulet anyway, this amulet of whoosie what's it? Amulet of Amenartus, I said. I shrugged and gazed into the fire. And you know what the ministry's briefs are like, long on the what and lacking on the why, eh? He barked a bitter-sounding laugh. Oh, too true that, and often short on the real what, what? He laughed at his own joke. Do you know anything about it, old boy? What it looks like? How will we know it if we manage to find it? Well, according to the ministry's archivist, it's a linked collection of blue stones. The earliest reports come from some inscriptions found in the sandstone in the Kalahari. Deuced little to go on. Are we to chase every will-o'-the-wisp, Ben? He took a pull from his drink. Something must have happened to send us dancing into the bush with the director's strings, eh? What was it? Oh, it's the Zulus. Chachueo's been acting up, and Her Majesty is concerned. He snorted most disrespectfully. I ignored his rudeness toward the crown. In February, the ministry received a report that a hunter spotted this Induna Lumbwe at Rourke's Drift, and he was wearing a necklace of glowing blue stones. Hunters, Morrison scoffed. They get out in the bush and see all sorts of things. What makes this one so special? He died shortly after making the report, I paused, along with all fifty-two of his bearers and guides. Morrison turned a sour look in my direction. How is this related to Lumbwe? Apparently Lumbwe and a pair of natives killed them all. He blinked in confusion. A pair? How the blazes? I toasted him with my cup. That's what the ministry would like to know. And there is one more thing. I hesitated for a moment, wondering how to phrase it. Morrison waited for me to go on. This uh, Lumbwe has been popping up all over southern Africa. Wherever he shows, there's trouble. All the same could be said for us, old boy. The first reports on record are from a London missionary society mission to Lunda province. And they reported a brute of a native who came in out of the Kalahari one day, wearing a necklace of blue stones. He even sat for a portrait. Morrison snickered. A portrait? What, Bornington traveling with missionaries now, is he? Come to sketch the landscape and dashed off a quick sketch, did he? Reaching into an inner pocket, I pulled out a small square of paper and handed it to him. Morrison scowled in consternation but took the paper. He tilted it toward the fire to get a good look at the face of our quarry. That's a magnetostatic copy of the missionary's original sketch from Ministry's archives. He glanced at it for a few moments and then glanced back at me. It's supposed to be our man, is he? I shrugged. Supposed to be? That's quite a scar, Morrison said, looking at a distinctive pucker of flesh along the man's jawline. That should help if we need to pick him out of a crowd. 
That necklace he's wearing, I pointed to the distinctive pattern of stone and thong the artist had rendered. That's the amulet of Amenartas, and it's supposed to have glowed, even in the light of day. Morrison offered the sketch back, and I slipped it carefully back into my inner pocket. So? I still don't get it. Why is this blighter so interesting to the ministry? What's the interest in a big-boned brute with some glowing trinkets? Shortly after this missionary left the village, Lumbui slaughtered every living inhabitant down to the livestock. Alone? Morrison seemed impressed. Three warriors helped him. Morrison sat back in his seat. Well, with three warriors against an unarmed village, that seems hardly noteworthy, old boy. In the winter of ninety-eight, I said. Startled, Morrison held up his hand and counted on his fingers before looking over at me, astonishment on his face. But that's... I nodded. Are they sure it's the same man? Of course not. How could it be? I gazed into the fire for a long moment. Still, if it is, and this Lumbui and his amulet were to join forces with Chetsueo and his Zulus now, what deviltry could they concoct? Morrison's lips pressed together in a thin line, and I could see him contemplating the catalogue of catastrophes such an alliance might produce. Six weeks later, I was ready to pack it in. We followed rumors and stories from Rourke's Drift deep into the Transvaal, almost to the headwaters of the Limpopo, across into Swaziland and back, crisscrossing the bush from settlement to crawl, village to fort and back again. I could not dislodge the suspicion that our barrows laughed behind their fires in the night at our endless meandering. I had even been forced to abandon my steamer trunk. The ubiquitous mud and dirt clogged the delicate machinery of the articulated legs. Filthy water fouled the boiler's tubes until it could barely eke out enough steam to support itself. In the end, I ran out of coal pellets and was reduced to distributing my loads to native barrows while Morrison, damn his eyes, snickered at me. I left it beside the trail somewhere in the Transvaal, like a blown mount. It was simply too heavy to carry. I found it embarrassing. "'How long will you keep this up, old boy?' Morrison asked as we settled in after another long and fruitless day's tramp through the scorch and the dust. I eyed the diminished level of stores." We had reduced what seemed like a vast pile requiring the services of thirty-five bearers to a state where I worried that we might soon be reduced to eating only game and drinking a foul decoction of the local redbush. We had paid off twenty of the bearers at Nanguaya, and the fifteen remaining were sufficient and more. When I did not respond, he spat into the fire. It's a big country. What did you think? You'd come out here and knock on a few doors. Excuse me, sir or madam, have you seen this man? It's a needle in a haystack, I tell you. Out in the bush, the scratching call of a hunting cat echoed in the night. Still, I had no answer. Morrison had the right of it, and while I feared that his motive for pressing me on the subject had more to do with his dwindling supply of gin than the futility of the search, I had to admit to myself that his argument had merit. How far to the next crawl? I asked. Morrison sat up straight and called something across the camp to our guide. He said. Tomorrow afternoon, Morrison said, looking back at me. Then what? I sighed and threw a small stick onto the fire. If there's nothing there, then we'll head back to Durban and send a wire for further instructions. Well, buck up, old man, Morrison said. You can't follow a trail that doesn't exist. 
A hyena laughed in the distance, but the sound cut off at the barking cough of a lion. I seemed nothing else to say, and I took to my cot to try to sleep. Failure felt bitter in my mouth, and I wondered if the tang of the gin kept Morrison from tasting it. The following afternoon, our luck changed. Our guide, Mumpolo, led the way across a brush-studded plain. I kept the Enfield Monzer in my hands, ready to fire should the need arise. The heavy loads would stop anything up to and including a bull elephant, but with the limited visibility in the bush I feared we might stumble on trouble without much warning. Morrison eyed me with some amusement and kept his ancient forebore on the sling. As the day wore on and the sun beat down, the rifle grew heavier. "'I say, Morrison, why do you bother with that ancient stick?' I asked, making conversation to help pass the time. "'What then, this?' he asked, placing his hand on the barrel. "'You think I should be tugging about one of those?' He jerked his chin at my Enfield Monza. "'We are authorized, aren't you?' I asked. I patted the stock. "'Latest thing out of Sheffield, don't you know?' "'Bah!' he spat. "'I'll take my Birmingham iron over those fancy doodads out here in the bush.' "'What? Enfield Monza? Finest British steel? Compressed air power? Gyro slugs to spin the shell?' I shook my head in dismay. "'This throws almost twice the weight as that four-bore and is only half the recoil, old boy.' He sniffed. "'And what do you do if the shell punctures, eh? Answer me that. And where do you get your bloody fancy gyro slugs out here in the bush? That's what I want to know. Can you answer me that?' He shook his head and patted the barrel of his gun again. No, and I'll take simple over some Clankerton's toy. At least I know this'll work. I scoffed. That's nothing more than a shoulder-mounted cannon. Indeed it is, and you'll be grateful for it one of these days. Mark my words. He turned away from me and marched ahead, effectively cutting off further conversation. I frowned and sighed. Morrison was one of ours, but it seemed to me that he had a lot to learn about the proper respect for crown country and fine modern weapons. We were still some distance out when I heard the barrows behind us muttering. Usually they said little while on the march, hoisting their burdens in the morning and moving almost silently through the bush all day. I looked back to see what caused the commotion and saw several of them looking ahead up into the shocking blue firmament. Vultures, Morrison said. "'Something's dead.' "'I did not see them at first. "'The brilliant sun dazzled my eyes, "'but adjusting the magnification on my telemonocle, "'I caught the movements of hundreds of broad wings against the sky. "'A lot of somethings by the look,' Morrison added. "'The smell hit us from half a league away. "'The noise of feeding scavengers squabbling over the remains "'cut off sharply as we approached the kraal's outer fence, "'and Morrison fired a few rounds from his ancient tranter through the gate and into the nearest flock of vultures. Those too heavy to fly scuttled off between the huts, while those that could left streaky gray souvenirs as they took wing. Scattered among the wattle and daub domes, the bodies of the inhabitants lay dismembered and scattered about. I could see dead cattle in the inner crawl, bodies already bloating in the sun. Being a good Englishman, I did my best not to retch. I had been on the battlefield and seen the gory results of grape shot, the torn body of a child, however, was nearly my undoing. Morrison spat onto the red dust. "'It won't be telling much,' he said. I turned to the guide. Morrison spoke earnestly at some length while the guide merely shook his head, the whites of his eyes prominent in his distress. He kept repeating, "'Namba, namba buona,' and "'Ulamale, ulamale.' Finally, Morrison stopped badgering the man and blew out a breath before saying something else and waving his hand around to encompass the village. 
The guide frowned but nodded. Ndio Mubwana, he said, before turning away and shouting for one of the other bearers to join him. Together they disappeared around the outer perimeter of the crawl, their eyes scanning the rust-colored ground. I say, what was that about, Morrison? Lampolo there is unhappy about the bodies. Black magic, he says. He won't go into the village. What do you think? I asked, turning back to look at the braver vultures peeking around the edge of a nearby hut. I heard the squawking from the far side of the village where the birds had already returned to their horrid feast out of view. I don't know what to think. Morrison looked at me, his bloodshot eyes looking suddenly a decade older. I'm afraid you may have found your Induna. That's mad. Why would... Mbwana, Mbwana! The shout carried over the rising den of feasting vultures. Tui Maesha! Surprise flashed across Morrison's face. Someone's alive! He turned and jogged off toward the shout. We found a youth half under a thorn bush. Ampolo held him while the bearer waved a stick to keep the buzzards at bay. Morrison knelt beside the boy and they had a quiet conversation. I looked away, scanning the bush for movement. When I looked back, Morrison was closing the boy's eyes with two fingers. I looked again and realized that the youth was not half under the bush after all. Part of his lower body was missing, and the dark shadows under the bush had nothing to do with the sun. Morrison stood and blew out a great breath. All right, then. He looked at me as if it were somehow my fault before turning to Mumpolo. After a short conversation, the two natives continued their circuit around the rude compound, and we headed back to the gate. Did he tell you what happened? I asked as we approached the waiting bearers. Yes. His garrulous manner gone, his stride took on purpose as we closed on the bearers. He pointed and shouted. After a few moments, the porters stacked our goods under an acacia and began pulling shovels and picks from the kit. It took us the rest of the afternoon to bury them all, or at least the pieces we could find. The grisly chore completed, we moved upwind half a league or so to camp for the night. Filthy, tired, and smelling of death, none of us had much appetite, but built roaring fires against the dark anyway. I went through the motions as the sun set, making a pot of tea and cursing as I emptied the next-to-last tin of Assam's finest. Much longer, and I'd be reduced to the native redbush, or cadging Morrison's gin. I tossed the empty tin aside. What did he say? I asked, settling onto the camp chair to wait for the pot to finish steeping. The boy. Morrison splashed some gin into a tin cup and swallowed a dollop before answering. Yesterday, a small band of travelers visited the village. Three warriors and a great man, an Induna with a scar along his jaw. The eldest son welcomed them, gave them sorghum beer, and after a visit with the chief, they moved on. The Induna wore a necklace of blue stones that shined even in the light of day, he said. Last night, they came back. He was out looking for a lost calf. He came back when he heard the screaming. Morrison paused and took another swig from his cup. They caught him. The Induna ripped his leg off, and the four of them took it with them off into the bush. I could feel myself staring at him. Morrison shrugged. That's what he said. Lumbwe, I asked. He shrugged again. We stared into the fire until the quarter moon rose in the east. I say, what's that then? Morrison asked, breaking the silence. What? 
I looked up at him and saw him staring out into the night. I turned to follow his gaze and felt the hairs rise on the nape of my neck. In the distance, perhaps half a mile or so away, through some trick of bramble and bush, I saw a tiny blue light bobbing against the blackness of night. My telemonocle gave me a few clues, the movements of the light and the trembling in my muscles making it difficult to focus. Our fire had burned down to coals, and the bearers had curled up in their bedrolls, one lone lookout keeping a small fire flickering in their pit. I looked back, and the light still danced in the darkness. Morrison stood and drained the last of his gin. He crossed to where his forebore rested against the tent tree and looked at me, a vicious and humorless smile on his face. I think we should take a little walk, don't you, old man? Something in the night, in the grinding weeks of being in the bush, in the horror of the day, drove me from my seat. I found myself strapping on the heavy Merwin and Hulbert sidearm and checking the Enfield monster's bulky cartridges. I pulled the delicate starlight amplifying goggles from their case and fitted them onto my head. There was no need for the helmet in the darkness. Somehow I knew the dirty business would be over long before dawn broached the eastern horizon and hammered us on the anvil of morning. In the distance, I could still see the tiny blue light a brilliant speck against a blackness turned gray and shadowy in the light of the stars and faint moon. We were mad to strike off into the bush in the dark, just the two of us, but we did it. Something in the night air drew us onward. The starlight goggles gave more than enough light for me to avoid the worst of the brush, rocks, and pitfalls. We raced across the baked earth, the faint scuffling of Morrison's souls, an irregular whisper against the night breeze through the sparse and thorny undergrowth. My own footfalls sounded only faintly louder, and in less time than I expected, we closed on a clearing in the brush and dropped to the ground to reconnoiter. Ahead of us, a huge black man danced in an odd stamping rhythm around the dying coals of a fire. He wore only a breech clout and a necklace of blue stones. On the far side of the clearing, two Zulu warriors sat back to back, shields and acid guys beside them on the ground. From their positions, they seemed to be asleep, or at least nodding. The goggles revealed the clearing in full detail, even down to the shadowed boundary beyond the fire, although I needed to take care not to look too closely at the growing embers for fear that the amplified brilliance could dazzle me. Someone was missing. I thought the boy said three warriors, I said, my voice a bare breath against my lips. In the corner of my eye, I saw Morrison nod and scan slowly across the clearing, looking for the missing warrior. He did not have to look far. I felt, rather than heard, a heavy footfall and rolled to my right just as the warrior drove his spear into the ground where I had lain hidden. His great shout echoed in the darkness. Well, that's torn it, I muttered and heard Morrison grunt in response as the warrior pulled back for a second strike. I managed to clear my sidearm, and a lucky shot caught the looming Zulu in the chest, throwing him backwards. The explosion and muzzle flash stunned the night, and I shook the starlight goggles off my face, half-dazzled by the brilliance. When I looked back to the clearing, I saw the two remaining warriors sprinting in our direction, shields up, guys with wicked points gleaming in the firelight. With mere seconds to spare, I brought the Merwin and Hulbert around, firing two rounds at each of the charging Zulus. The range was short, and luck was on my side, but because even in the darkness and brush, 
my shots struck home, and in moments both of them lay sprawled, blood leaching into the dry ground. I glanced over to Morrison and saw he had his forebore up and leveled in an infantry hold, his face nestled against the stock and both eyes open facing into the clearing. Lumbwe stood on the far side of the fire. His fists clenched and his face screwed into a fierce frown. His visage seemed animated by something not quite human, something vile and hungry. I recognized that face with a shock. It was the same one that the missionary sketched. The scar across his jaw gleamed smoothly in the dull light of the fire. He stood as if rooted, and a weird power seemed to emanate from him. On his chest, the blue amulet flared in a double pulse that looked like heartbeats, growing brighter with each beat. And Lumbui glowed with that eerie energy. Slowly, he raised one hand, palm out, and started to chant. The forebore all but when Morrison fired. The heavy lead slug took Limbui's head in a flash of fire and a plume of brilliant powder smoke. One instant, his baleful glare threatened to rend a hole in the night, and the next, his heart's blood spurted from the ruined arteries of his neck. The blue pulses on his chest slowed, the brilliance weakened, and the body collapsed, knees folding to plant themselves in the reddened earth before the torso fell backwards in an impossible sprawl. I turned to Morrison, who seemed as stunned by the action as I, but in a moment he was up and racing across the clearing, the heavy gun held before him like a spear. I staggered to my feet and cleared the action on the Enfield Monza, making sure that the weapon had not fouled in the dirt, and looking around in the darkness to see if we'd had attracted any unwanted attention. I walked across the packed clearing and checked the bodies. I found three pairs of staring eyes, saw no breath to animate their chests. I kicked their assegais out to the bush just to be sure, and then turned to the fire and Morrison, who leaned over the corpse of the man we believed to be Lumbwe. In the fire, I saw what looked like a log on a spit over the coals until my mind managed to put the pieces together properly, and I realized we had found the boy's missing leg. I closed my eyes and rubbed a hand across my face. It was not my first time in the dark continent, but at that moment, I fervently prayed it would be my last. When I opened my eyes again, Morrison had retrieved the necklace from the corpse. He held it up to the fire to get a look at it and grunted. Not sapphires, he said at last. I don't know what they are. He straightened up and held the necklace by its rough leather band. The stones, which had glowed so brilliantly before, only reflected the ruddy light of the coals. Whatever had enlivened the stones had left as soon as Lumbui's life spurted away and soaked into the dust. A feeling of sickness washed over me. Not the post-action nausea that afflicted some in the field, but rather a sinking dread of what was to come. It was as if I knew what was happening, but stood powerless to stop it. Morrison held the amulet close to his face, peering into the stones, and before I could speak, slipped it over his head. He grunted as if struck when the heavy amulet fell to his chest and lay over his heart. He looked down at it, an expression of horror turned to elation as the stone began to glow, faintly at first, but stronger with each beat of his heart. 
He looked at me across the fire pit for a moment and then back at the amulet glowing on his chest. That's enough, Morrison. Take it off, I said. My dry mouth could barely form the words and what I intended as a shout came out a dull croak. He looked at me then and cupped his hand as if to protect the amulet from my gaze. He lowered himself into a defensive crouch. Something dark and wild showed in his eyes. No. The word was a whip crack in the silence. Morrison, take it off before it's too late. I could barely get spit enough to coat my tongue, and I knew even as I spoke that it was already too late. Whatever foul animus inhabited the amulet already claimed him. Across the clearing, the glow continued to grow. With each beat of his heart, it flashed brighter and brighter. His eyes never left my face, even as I saw his hand move slowly toward the tranter on his hip. It's mine. You'll have to kill me to take it from me. His low, menacing growl carried tones I had never heard from another human being. Yet something in his voice, some memory of the Morrison I knew from weeks on the trail, flashed across his visage before the horrid, feral expression returned. The Enfield Morrison bowed in my hands. Off-center recoil spun me to my knees, and the weapon jerked almost free. A heavy slug drove into Morrison's chest, throwing him backwards, arms up as if in surrender. A heavy pool soaking the ground around him as I watched. On his chest, the amulet grew quiescent again, darkening within seconds to dull stone once more. I knelt there, holding myself braced on the barrel of my rifle until my legs felt strong enough to support me. I stood, crossed to the body, and noted the sad smile on his face, eyes closed as if in sleep. The amulet lay in a pool of ruined flesh and blood, and a desire seized me, a need to pull the evil thing off my companion to free him of its fell clutch for good. I started to reach for it, but stopped, and used the barrel of my rifle to snake the necklace off his body, over his head, standing with it dangling from the bore like some stone-laced robberous. Not knowing what else to do, I turned back toward our camp and made my way gingerly through the acacia and aloes. I don't know how long I walked. Enfield Monza held out in front of me with the evil addition, swinging with each step. Each step it called to me. Each step it held my gaze transfixed, unable to pull away from the danger, yet unwilling to embrace the darkness it offered. And offer it did. It promised me power. It sang songs of strength. It held out immortality. It tempted me with all those things and more in a language I could not explain through divine reason. With each and every step it offered, it begged, it cajoled. God help me, I wanted it. The only thing that kept me from taking it was the memory of that look on Morrison's face just before I killed him. Whatever the offer, Morrison knew the truth in that moment. And he sacrificed himself to save me. 
When I got back to camp, I spotted the empty tea tin and lowered the necklace into it, latching the lid down firmly. I could hear it still, but tucked away in the metal case, it slowly weakened until I was able to rise and stoke up the fire. Looking across at the bearers, I saw all of them awake and looking at me, eyes glowing in the darkness, round in fear and shock. Kesho, I said. Kesho Durban. They looked at each other nervously for a few moments and then settled with some uneasy mutterings. As for me, I stayed up all night, staring at the tea tin. The trek back to Durban and the airship voyage to London blurred. I kept the tin with its vile cargo in a knapsack that never left my side for what seemed like months. I heard the amulet's call. I fought the siren song as it grew weaker and weaker. Deprived of blood, deprived of will, the animus within slowly faded until at last it grew silent somewhere over the cold waters of the Atlantic. I knew it was not dead, merely waiting. Finally, I placed it in the hands of the ministry's archivist and reported to the director's office wherein I related the entire story, sparing myself nothing in the telling. I felt some trepidation in bearing my soul to such a degree to this new director. Dr. Sound had taken over only recently, and I had few occasions to meet with him before that fateful day. I could not be sure how he might react to such a wild and violent story. Still, duty is a harsh mistress at times, and I braced myself for whatever might befall me. When it was over, Dr. Sound stared at me unmoving for what seemed like several minutes. The only sound a tinny thrip-tock, thrip-tock, thrip-tock from the clock on his desk. Finally, without saying a word, he reached into a drawer in his desk and pulled out a heavy tumbler and a dark bottle. He poured two fingers into the tumbler and slid it across his wide desk with a nod. As I took it up, he pressed a buzzer, and his secretary entered, note-taker at the ready. May you please strike Agent Randall Morrison from the rolls? He frowned at me from under lowered brows as Mayhew made a notation. Of course, sir, Mayhew replied. What shall I say is cause of death, sir? Dr. Sound spun in his chair and looked out over the smoke-clouded skyline of London. Death by misadventure, Mayhew. Mark him killed by Zulus. Nathan Lowell is regarded as one of the most prolific creators of podcast fiction, his name now used as a unit of measurement for word count achieved in a short span of time. For example, this weekend I achieved a half Lowell of 5,000 words of my work in progress. His podcast novels, Trader's Tales, are best described as Horatio Hornblower in Outer Space and are now being released in print through Ryden Publishing. Dr. Lowell holds a PhD in Educational Technology with specializations in distance education and instructional design. He also holds an MA in Educational Technology and a BS in Business Administration. He served in the United States Coast Guard from 1970 to 1975, seeing duty aboard a cutter on Hurricane Patrol in the North Atlantic and at a communications station in Kodiak, Alaska. 
He currently lives far from the sea in the plains east of the Rocky Mountains with wife and two daughters and can be found online at nathanlowell.org. For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, pre-order your copy of Phoenix Rising, a Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences novel from your favourite bookstore or online from Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com or the iBookstore. Original music composed by Alex White. Find out more at TheGearHeart.com. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales from the Archives. And Imagine That Studios, Koru Studios, Harper Voyager Production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Ballantyne. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening.